8. The erection of the fortifications of the spot, and the ruins which still exist attest the solidarity and the extent of the buildings. A large annual sum was wont to be allotted for the maintenance of these fortifications, and for other objects connected with the sustenance of both the prisoners and the garrison. It seems to have been necessary to expend only a very small proportion of this sum on the objects for which the allowance was originally intended, and from its enormous financial opportunities the post of governor of Valdivia was one of the most sought after of any on the west coast of South America. The later colonial era of Chile, like that of Peru, is very little concerned with dramatic episode, with the exception, of course, of the raids on the part of foreigners which took place from time to time along the coast. Yet it is curious to remark that in Chile, at the same time as these buccaneers were burning, plundering, and fighting, other vessels, more especially those of the French, were carrying on a trade in peace with the various ports of the state. This commerce, moreover, continued growing steadily, and the influence of the foreigners upon the Chileans in time became marked, and was largely responsible for the broad-minded views which prevailed among the colonials. Chapter XII The colonies of Paraguay and the River Plate We have seen how the Spaniards, having in the first instance attempted without success to establish themselves in Buenos Aires, had made their way up the great river system to Asuncion, and, having become firmly settled there, had in the end extended their dominions to the south again, and had founded the town of Buenos Aires for the second time. In the early days of these particular settlements, notwithstanding this extension to the southeast, Asuncion remained the capital of the province, which was known as that of Paraguay. The two currents of civilization, the one advancing from the southeast, and the other proceeding from the northwest, at length met in the territory which is now occupied by the northwestern territories of Argentina. It may be said that Argentina of today was colonized from three directions the first by means of the river Plate and its tributaries, the second by the passage of the Andes from the west and the third by an advance from the direction of Bolivia. Thus the northwestern section of present-day Argentina had become, as it were, the center towards which all the Castilian forces were converging. As time went on, the balance of importance tended to assert itself in the direction of Buenos Aires. Little by little the city of Asuncion, although remaining notable from the administrative point of view, became of less and less standing as a commercial center. That which undoubtedly helped to retard the progress of Asuncion was the almost continual strife which prevailed in that town between the Jesuits and the members, not only of the laity, but of the rival clergy as well. The Jesuits, moreover, were the reverse of popular with the Spanish landowners of Paraguay, for the reason that the missionaries had collected together the Indians in self-supporting communities and towns, thus depriving the colonists of the enforced labor which they now looked upon as one of their rights. These Jesuit settlements in Paraguay have been too fully dealt with to need anything in the way of an elaborate description here. Let it suffice to say that the famous communities were in many respects socialistic. The land, for instance, throughout the mission areas was held for the common good, and its produce was wont to be divided into three parts one of which was devoted to the church, the second to the state, and the third to the private use of the Indian agriculturalists. It is now generally conceded that, in consideration of the gross, sensual, and totally unintelligent human clay with which the missionary fathers had to deal, their efforts were astonishingly successful. At the same time, the labors of these Jesuits were carried on largely in the dark that is to say, fearing the influence of the white man upon their converts, they refused admission to their land to any Spaniards. This method, as has since been proved, 
was fully justified by the colonizing circumstances which prevailed at the time, nevertheless, it was only natural that it should have provoked a deep anger on the part of the Spanish settlers, in whose eyes these missions of the Jesuits had as their chief end the enriching of the pockets of the order at the expense of those of the colonists. Towards the middle of the 17th century matters reached a crisis in Asuncion. The newly appointed bishop, Don Bernardino de Cardenas, showed himself most actively opposed to the works of the Jesuits in Paraguay. An open hostility soon manifested itself between the two powers, and the strife grew more and more bitter until, not only the entire body of the clergy, but the governor, the officials, and the laymen were involved as well. Whatever were the faults which the Jesuits may have committed in Paraguay and to what extent these have been exaggerated is now patent it is quite certain that Cardenas was a being totally unfit to be invested with the dignity and responsibility of a bishop's office. It is true that his eloquence in preaching was superb, this, however, undoubtedly arose rather from an acutely developed artistic sense than from any profound religious convictions. Cardenas, in fact showed himself upon occasions hysterical and wayward to a point which was absolutely childish. This peculiarity in a person holding so important a position as his naturally produced utter confusion in Paraguay. According to Mr. R.B. Cunningham Graham, these were some of the methods by which the bishop in the end utterly scandalized the more sober of his congregation. The bishop, not being secure of his position, had recourse to every art to catch the public eye, fasting and scourging, prayers before the altar two masses every day, barefoot processions himself the central figure carrying a cross each had their turn, along the deep red roads between the orange gardens which lead from Asuncion towards the Ricoleta on Campo Grande, he used to take his way accompanied by Indians crowned with flowers, giving his benediction as he passed, to turn away according to himself the plague, and to ensure a fertile harvest, not being content with the opportunities which life afforded. He instituted an evening service in church in order to prepare for death. These, however, were only some of the milder uses to which the bishop put his histrionic talents in order to prove his claim to sainthood. The fortunes of Cardinals varied considerably, but on the whole his extraordinary versatility kept him afloat in the public estimation. He at one time, however, very nearly incurred the popular resentment owing to his having taken up the body of a suicide and caused it to be interred in holy ground from the force of a mere whim. The uproar consequent on this he managed to overrule, and having got the better of Don Gregorio, the civil governor, the bishop actually elected himself governor in his place, and now became supreme in Asuncion, from which place the Jesuits were forced to flee in haste to their establishments in the country. Each side now brought endless charges against the other and in the middle of the wordy warfare the validity of Cardenas's appointment to the bishopric was questioned. Nevertheless, Cardenas succeeded in retaining his office, and after a while issued a declaration excommunicating the entire order of the Jesuits, after which, having sworn to the people that he possessed a decree from the King of Spain, he issued an order commanding the expulsion of the Jesuits from Paraguay. This was carried into effect at Asuncion, and the College of the Order was sacked and gutted by fire outside the boundaries of the capital. However, this command had no effect whatever, and the great settlements of the Jesuits far away in the forests were totally unaffected by any mandate given at Asuncion. The bishop had now gone too far in his policy of aggression. The high court at Charcas summoned him to appear before its tribunal at once, and to give his reasons for the expulsion of the Jesuits and his appointment of himself as governor of Paraguay. At the same time a new governor, Don Sebastian de Leon, 
was appointed to Paraguay. Cardenas determined to resist. He raised an army, and, claiming divine inspiration, promised his followers an undoubted victory, and ordered them to supply themselves with cords in order to bind the prisoners which should fall to their share. The rival forces met just outside Asuncion. The unfortunate troops of Cardenas found no use for their cords, since, totally defeated, they fled in haste, judging mercy to be most seasonable at this juncture. The new governor commanded his men to march to the capital, but to desist from pursuing the defeated forces. In the meanwhile Cardenas had lost no time, realizing his complete defeat. He had fled secretly to Asuncion, arriving there ahead of Don Sebastian de Leon's forces. He had dressed himself in his finest robes and seated himself on the throne of the cathedral. It was there that Don Sebastian de Leon found him when he entered. The new governor acted with supreme courtesy. He kissed the bishop's hand, and ceremoniously requested him to spare him the baton of the civil power. In silence Cardenas complied with his request, and then retired, accompanied by his retinue. After this Asuncion knew him no more. Naturally the days of his supreme power were over but he was still provided with an ecclesiastical office. He was made Bishop of Lopan, a benefice he continued to hold until his death, owing largely to their situation. These provinces in the southeast of the continent continued from time to time to elude some of the stricter regulations and restrictions which were supposed to be applied to the whole continent. Thus at the end of the 16th century the governorship of the River Plate was entrusted to Hernando Arias de Saavedra, who was more familiarly known as Hernandarias. He was the first colonial-born subject of Spain to be gratified by such an honor. The appointment, as a matter of fact, was somewhat remarkable, as without a doubt it was strictly against the spirit of the laws of the Indies, which utterly forbade any appointment of the kind to be entrusted to a colonial-born person. Hernandarias, it must be said, makes one of the most remarkable figures of all the high officials of the River Plate. He proved himself a strenuous warrior, and, anxious to extend his frontiers, he carried on a tremendous warfare with the fierce Indians of the Pampa. The governor, moreover, was gifted with no little foresight and practical common sense. Finding it impossible to establish a footing among the implacable natives of Uruguay, he caused a number of cattle, horses, and sheep to be sent across the great river, and to be let loose among the rich pastures of that country. He knew, he said and it was not long before the future proved him right that this land would one day be the property of the Spaniards, and thus these cattle which he sent over would, when the time came, be found to have multiplied themselves to an infinite extent, which, of course, fell out as he had anticipated. Hernandarias, moreover, led an expedition to the south, and endeavored to take possession of Patagonia. Here, after various disasters, he inflicted a severe defeat on the Indians, but few definite steps towards the practical colonization of the far south appear to have been taken at this period. Hernandarias, enthusiastic soldier though he proved himself, by no means confined his energies to the arts of war, in statesmanship his ideas were progressive. Having once subdued the wilder Indians, he led the way to peaceful company operation. According to Senor J. Anastra, Hernandarias devoted his whole soul to the development of a species of colonization which he terms the spiritual conquest that is to say, he inculcated into the country the Christian spirit of discipline, civilization, and concord. He awoke the soul of the savage, and turned his instincts in search of better things than he had known. He closed the barracks of the soldiers and opened the colleges of the missionaries. In some respects Hernandarias's tenure of office resembled that of Irala for, 
although unanimously elected by the colonists, in whose eyes he was estimated at his true value. The official ratification of Spain of his appointment was many years in forthcoming, the principal reason for the delay being, of course, due to the fact of his colonial birth. On several occasions his government was interrupted owing to this, and, indeed, Hernandarias may be said to have ruled for various distinct periods. It was only on November 7, 1614, that he received the definite appointment as governor from the court of Spain. It was at this period that the government of the River Plate was separated from that of Paraguay, Buenos Aires being made the capital of the former, while Asuncion remained the capital of the latter. This process of subdivision was continued until, at the period when the Viceroyalty of Buenos Aires was constituted, it consisted of the provinces of Paraguay, Tucumán, Quil, the River Plate, Santa Cruz de la Sierra, and Charcas. The value of these River Plate provinces was now become apparent to Spain. Lacking in minerals though they were, these southeastern territories of the continent were now exporting an amazing quantity of horns, hides, tallow, and other such produce of the pastoral industry, so abundant, indeed, had become the wild herds of cattle which roamed on the plains of the alluvial country that a stray buccaneer or two landed a force with the object of collecting horns and hides. At a later period a French adventurer of the name of Moro endeavored to establish himself permanently on the Uruguayan shore for this purpose. He had already fortified himself, and had collected a considerable store of hides. When he was attacked by the Spaniards and driven from the spot, he returned to attempt the venture for the second time, but his force was again defeated, and on this occasion he lost his life. The Indians in these provinces had now become expert horsemen. They, too possessed their share of the enormous quantities of livestock with which the country abounded, but if from drought or any other such cause the numbers of their animals grew uncomfortably diminished, they would raid the European settlements, and, taking the colonists by surprise and slaughtering without mercy, would sweep the countryside clear of livestock, and scamper away to their own haunts at top speed. Thus the hatred between the natives and the colonials grew ever more bitter, and weapons, ambushes, and massacres constituted the sole means of communication between the two. These Indians of the open plains proved themselves formidable enemies, and, utterly merciless as they showed themselves to the vanquished, they rapidly became a continual source of dread to the pioneers living in the remoter settlements. In 1767, when the order was received from Spain to expel the Jesuits from the Spanish colonies in South America, the expulsion took place unattended by any untoward circumstances in such places as Cordoba, Corrientes, Montevideo, and Santa Fe. In these places the buildings that had been devoted to the objects of the order were ransacked, and, unfortunately, many valuable collections of books and similar objects were destroyed. The authorities regarded with more hesitation the carrying out of the orders from Spain in the province of Paraguay. Many tens of thousands of Indians formed part of the Jesuit settlements and the influence of the company was supreme throughout all the territories which now constitute northwest Uruguay, southeast Paraguay, and southwest Brazil. Don Francisco de Paula Bucarelli y Ursula, the governor of Buenos Aires, marched north in order to effect the eviction. Bucarelli's few companies of troops would, of course, in actual warfare have stood no chance whatever against the numerous Indian regiments which the Jesuit missions now possessed. Bucarelli relied on his gifts of tact and diplomacy, of which he gave no small evidence during the negotiations which ensued. As it turned out, the employment of neither of these qualities, nor of the troops which he brought with him, proved necessary, 
for the Jesuits expressed themselves ready and willing to comply with the order, and, having obeyed it, they were escorted to Buenos Aires. From thence they were sent by ship to Europe, and the great social structure they had erected fell forthwith to the ground. The districts which had formerly been occupied by the Mission Indians became after a while practically depopulated, and the Portuguese, remarking this state of affairs, decided that the moment was favorable for aggression. Thus, in 1801, Portuguese troops from the town of San Pedro advanced against the Spanish port on the western shore of the Lake Tutos, whilst others advanced towards the river Prado. The majority of these invaders appear to have been more or less of the freebooting order. One of the most notable bodies was commanded by José Borges do Canto, who assembled a small army of forty men, which he armed at his own expense, learning that the Indians, bereft now of their Jesuit fathers and discontented with the Spanish rule, would take the first opportunity of rising against the Spaniards. He determined to push on towards the site of the old missions. At San Miguel the band of desperados came across an entrenchment manned by Spaniards. These entirely deceived as to the real importance of the force which attacked them, retired after the exchange of a few shots, and capitulated on condition of permission to a retreat and molested. This was granted, but the retiring Spanish garrison was almost immediately afterwards taken prisoner by another roving Portuguese body. It was some while before their protests caused them to be liberated. In the end the Portuguese obtained possession of much territory by means of this invasion including that of the seven famous missions of San Francisco Borja, San Miguel, San João, San Angelo, San Nicolau, San Lorenco, and San Luis. We arrive now at an event which exercised an even greater influence on the destiny of South America in general than was suspected at the time. This was the invasion of the River Plate provinces by the British. Undoubtedly, one of the prime causes of this invasion was the presence of the famous South American patriot, Miranda in England, and the antagonism which existed at the time between Great Britain and Spain, urged by Miranda, Pitt determined to lend active military assistance to the South American colonists. Many of these were now openly demonstrating their sense of discontent, yet none, it must be said, had so far shown any inclination or desire to go to the length of taking up arms against the mother country. It was, nevertheless, entirely on this latter supposition that the British forces sailed for the river plate. The first expedition consisted of some 1.600 troops, under the orders of General Beersford, which were transported to Buenos Aires by a fleet under Admiral Home Potham. On June 27, 1806, Buenos Aires was captured. The Viceroy, Sobremonte, demonstrated remarkably little warlike ardor, fleeing in haste before the advancing British. A French naval officer in the service of the Spanish, Don Santiago Liniers, organized an army of relief at Montevideo, to which all the South American volunteers, officers and troops, flocked. The local forces, now powerfully recruited, crossed the river plate, attacked Buenos Aires, and won the city back for the Spanish crown on August 12th. Admiral Potham, notwithstanding this, remained in the river plate with his fleet, and, having blockaded the estuary, received reinforcements from the Cape of Good Hope. By means of these the town of Maldonado was captured. A little later more important bodies of British troops arrived on the scene, commanded by General Upmuddy. These attacked Montevideo, which fell into the hands of the invaders on February 3, 1807, determined to pursue its operations in this quarter of the world. The British government now dispatched General Whitelocky with a formidable army to the river plate, 
12,000 of the finest British troops were now established at Montevideo preparing for the expedition which was to bring Buenos Aires within the British Empire. The attempt, however, failed completely, and a terrible disaster ensued, the cause of which is imputed entirely to the crass folly of White Lucky, who sent his regiments to march through the streets of the town, to be shot down in hundreds by the determined defenders congregated on the housetops. In many instances the result of this extraordinary piece of strategy was near slaughter, since the British troops, many of whom had been charged to use nothing beyond the bayonet and to refrain from firing, could adopt no retaliatory measures whatever. In the circumstances total defeat was inevitable, and at the end of the engagement the general found himself a prisoner in the hands of the South Americans. On this white lot he signed a treaty agreeing to evacuate the River Plate provinces altogether and within two months not a British soldier was left in Buenos Aires and Montevideo. On his arrival home White Lucky underwent a court-martial, and was cashiered with well-deserved and bitter censure. Apart from the extraordinary incompetence to call it by no worse name shown by General White Lucky, there is some doubt as to whether the British would have succeeded in permanently retaining possession of the territory they had captured. For one thing, their expectations that the colonials would join them were not realized. The inherent loyalty of the South American to the motherland forbade any such move at the time. Nevertheless, it is freely acknowledged that this English expedition played no small part in the ultimate liberation of South America, since it was owing to the invasion that the South Americans, deserted by their viceroy, had only themselves on whom to rely for the expulsion of the expeditionary army. From the force of no initiative of their own, they had been left to their own resources and had found that their strength did not fail them. Amid the doubts and hesitations of later days the knowledge of this played an important part. Chapter XIV The Northern Colonies at Island to a certain extent. Difficult for one familiar with the South America of today to realize the new Granada of the Spanish colonial period. From Guiana westward along the northern coast was an extensive and, for the most part, an exploited stretch of territory, devoid of such arbitrary boundaries as characterize it today and limited only on the north and west by the sea, and on the south by the Portuguese colony of Brazil and the great Spanish territory of Peru, Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador, and the sharply defined limits these names represent, are, of course, modern creations, comparatively speaking, for centuries the landward boundaries of Spanish New Granada remained shadowy, indefinite limits, there was a viceroyalty of New Granada, so named from the resemblance between the plains around Bogota and the Vega of the Moorish capital, and there was a captain generalship of Venezuela. New Granada was estimated as comprising all the country between 60 degrees and 78 degrees west longitude, and between 6 degrees to 15 degrees north latitude, in this was included Venezuela, under which name was comprised an extent of territory far less important than is at present the case. As has been related, she means to Quisada together with Binalcazar, the governor of Quito, conquered the district of Bogota, and founded that city in 1538. After this followed the banishment of Quesada by the Spanish authorities, his return and his wise rule of the country over which he was appointed marshal from 1551 onwards. Later, after his appointment as Adlandadu, he devoted three years of toil and an enormous amount of wealth to the quest of El Dorado, 300 Spaniards, 2.000 Indians and 1.200 horses set out on this quest, 24 men and 32 horses only returned. The costly myth of El Dorado, from the earliest days of its conception, was insatiable in the matter of human lives, 
Quisada died, like one or two other great figures of medieval times, of leprosy. After having founded the city of Santa Aguda in 1572, he left behind him a will in which he requested that no extravagant monument should be erected over his grave a rather superfluous request as it turned out, since he also left debts to the value of 60.000 ducats. The city of Bogota holds his remains, which were conveyed to that city after his death. The value of New Granada in the eyes of Spain lay in its being the chief emerald-producing center of the world. The conquistadors of Peru had met with emeralds, and had gathered the impression that the real emerald was as hard as a diamond, a belief which led them to submit all the green gems they found to the test of hammering with disastrous results to the stones. The loss occasioned by this procedure was intensified by the fact that for a long while it was found impossible to discover the mine from which the Incas had procured their emeralds. It was not until the discovery of New Granada that the source was revealed from which the stones had been obtained. The wealth of the land did not end here. From Popayan and Choco, provinces of the northwest, placer, gold was obtainable in fairly large quantities by the simple expedient of washing. Thus, on the whole, New Granada promised the Spaniards ample supplies of the minerals which they coveted, and which they sought without intermission. By reason of these things the Spanish government, ever fearful of a new colonial strength, came to the conclusion that the Viceroyalty of Peru was quite powerful enough and wealthy enough without these newer possessions. In the year 1718 the limits of the Viceroyalty of New Granada were defined, rendering the tract of land which now forms the republics of Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador quite independent of the Peruvian Viceroyalty, for, notwithstanding the fact that the Peruvian authority had every claim to the retention of the inland province of Quito, that also was assigned to the newer government, the conquests of Quesada and Binalcazar had established centers of Spanish influence, but they had not gone far towards organizing the control of the country, consequently, the establishment of a central authority at Bogota, independent of all but the Spanish crown, was a decidedly advantageous move, as was the case elsewhere in the continent. One of the chief evils requiring stringent treatment was that of smuggling. It was said, for instance, that in the early days half the great gold output of the colony was smuggled abroad by way of the rivers Atrado and Hacha. The first viceroy of New Granada caused forts to be erected on these and other streams, with a view to stopping the illegal traffic and this measure mitigated the evil which nothing in view of the half-settled state of the country could quite subdue. So little under control was the greater part of New Granada, that the good results of establishing a separate viceroyalty only became apparent slowly. The conquest of the Chibchas, effected as it was with all the refinements of cruelty familiar to the conquistadors, had added fierce resentment to the natural racial antipathy already existing in the savage tribes of the country and communication between provinces and towns was difficult in all cases, while in many it was altogether impracticable. There remained numerous bands of roving savages, fierce and predatory, to render travel unsafe, and though the efforts of the missionaries and others brought gentler ways to some in course of time, the whole of the colonial era was characterized by the presence of utterly fierce and vindictive bodies of aboriginals. While sufficient reprisals were indulged in by the Spaniards to keep alive the flame of hostility, there is something in the transportation of the European to tropical climates and the control of an inferior race which, in certain circumstances, appears to elude and to intensify all the most cruel instincts and desires of which humanity is capable. In reckoning up the racial contests in New Granada, reader and historian alike must give the aboriginal his due. He was by no means the gentle savage such as he is frequently depicted. Indeed, 
many of his native customs were completely brutal. Nevertheless, it is necessary to debit against the invader numerous excesses and deeds of cruelty directed against the inferior or subject race, and since popular feeling, which ranges on the side of the oppressed today, was undoubtedly on the side of the oppressor during the earlier centuries, there can be little doubt that the ferocity of the Indians of New Granada, and their hesitating acceptance of the missionaries' doctrine, were not without excuse. Although the soil of New Granada offered endless possibilities to the colonists, the cost of transport and the difficulties attendant on this necessary commercial operation rendered agriculture in the interior of little importance as an industry. Each settlement grew sufficient for its own needs, and no more. Other factors in the slight use made of the rich soil were the natural indolence and the improvident habits of the people habits not yet quite eradicated, since at the present day Venezuela, although it possesses some of the richest and best maize-growing lands in the world, still imports maize from the United States. From the creation of the Viceroyalty onward, attempts were made by the Spanish authorities to make the people industrious and thrifty, but these met with scant success. The power and character of the aboriginal tribes may be estimated from the fact that, up to the end of the colonial period, Spanish authority in the immense territory of Quito was only exercised over a valley, formed by two spurs of the Andes, which reached some 80 leagues in length, with an average breadth of 15 leagues. At the beginning of the 18th century a number of towns were established by Catholic missionaries on the Atlantic coast and on the rivers emptying into the Gulf of San Miguel, but the Indians destroyed them all and remain so little dominated by the white race that a treaty of peace, concluded between Spaniards and native chiefs in 1790, contained a clause by which the Spaniards consented to abandon all their forts in Darien. Beyond these there were other foes to be feared, quite as grim and even more dangerous. In 1670 the famous buccaneer, Captain Morgan, destroyed the castle of San Lorenzo at Chagres. This, of course, was in addition to his feat of capturing and burning the town of Panama. Ten years later another party of buccaneers captured the city of Santa Maria.